What's going on, guys? Michael here, Energy 360 Podcast. Man, I'm excited to be bringing you another interview with the experts over at Inveris. This time, repeat guest Rob McBride, Senior Director of Strategy and Analytics over there. Him and Stuart Turley, Director and Publisher of the world's greatest website, oilandgas360.com. Sit down and talk about all things natural gas, a new report that you could be able to find in the show notes. Uh, it really overviews a bunch of We had a great time, as always, talking with Rob. I don't want to spoil it, so I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Stu. Kick this one off. Hey, uh, good afternoon, Rob. I've enjoyed uh, getting uh, to chat with you about here, but we've got a really good report that your team put out, and it's the Haynesville and Appalachian Gas Focus Report. Uh, I've poured through this, and it is some outstanding uh, information from Inveris. Thanks. Uh, yeah, we, we aim to kind of give you some insight on what we think are the most interesting topics of the month, and uh, this one has definitely gotten a lot of uh, positive feedback. I'll tell you what, going through this, uh, just for our listeners a little bit, could we talk about just for a little bit, the difference between the Haynes and the Mar the Marcellus and tell us uh, what's going on there a little bit, Haynesville, excuse me. Sure, I mean, I, I think um, they do stand out to us as the two predominant dry gas plays in the uh, US or North America basins. Um, Haynesville has a little bit more history. Obviously, it got started before the activity in uh, the Marcellus, but overall, uh, it was very quickly overtaken by the just fantastic resource in the Appalachian Basin. Uh, the break-evens there just continued to improve over time, and it really became the focus of all growth uh, in the shale era boom for the U.S. gas story. Um, so it's sort of like the Haynesville was a little bit of the pioneer after the Barnett. Um, lost a little bit of favor, but I think right now it's definitely going to come back in favor. What it does have going for it is its proximity to some of our export destinations, which I'm sure we're going to get into is really the story of natural gas for the U.S. Um, it's not a slam dunk difference over the Marcellus, but it has a little bit of a nice uh, co-location to the Gulf Coast. Um, in your uh, numbers that your team has there, the Appalachians 32.72% in 2019, and it's increasing to 34.91. That's some big number uh, increase there. And uh, Haynesville's looking like it was 11.73% and moving up to 12.57. That's a huge chunk when you take a look at those two as gas um, in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, we we definitely see and are confident in those projections. Um, you know, I think the, the the Appalachia Basin has always been this one where the hits just keep on coming. It doesn't matter how low gas prices have gone. They've found a way to increase their efficiencies, get more out of the rock. Um, and now, they're really looking at a point where in 2021, even with current prices, but we are actually bullish on prices for 2021, um, they, they really should be able to enjoy some positive returns there. And I think the Haynesville also, um, you know, in its core acreage, its tier one acreage, its break-evens are very competitive. And now that we've removed a lot of the associated gas in the oily plays from the market, you got to look at those break-evens because in the oily plays, obviously, as we all know, gas is sort of a throwaway. We don't even have to think about the break-even. That's not the case anymore, and that really shines a light on the Haynesville coming back into focus as a um, 
a primary source of growth in the future. You know, with the Haynesville so close to the uh, Gulf Coast and exporting of LNG and Chenier and uh, having their trains coming online and, and stuff, do you feel or see that the Haynesville does have the big advantage over the Appalachian and the Marcellus because they're really not going out towards uh, LNG export, are they? Well, they are. I mean, I think it's been just a fascinating development over the past decade to watch the turnaround on all the traditional T pipes, the long haul pipes. Um, those projects really do help bring Marcellus and Utica gas back down to the Gulf Coast for export. Um, so, you know, I didn't mention earlier, Haynesville, yeah, it's proximate to the Gulf Coast, but we've built a lot of turnaround infrastructure to actually make the Marcellus equally. So I think they're going to be equally important. They'll both be needed. And as you see in the report we cover, even the Haynesville will need some additional infrastructure built um, to handle the growing uh, production we expect to come online there. Uh, in your report, you were talking about some of the pipelines that were coming online. Do you see that the uh, politics that or the uh, approval process is going to be possibly involved in that? Or do you feel those pipelines are actually going to come online? Yeah, I, I think the ones we've identified there um, will make it. Um, so let me let me take a step back. Obviously, the, the, the big story that you're sort of um, alluding to here is what happened to the Atlantic Coast Pipeline and Dominion walking away from you know, nearly $4 billion already sunk into that, um, but expected probably another $4 billion before they could even hope. So we've definitely, there's no doubt, we've entered a new era of resistance. I think the industry um, now knows for sure it is very easy, and the midstream is probably the most vulnerable. It's very easy to just hold these projects up in delayed resistance from different types of court filings, um, where it's really hard to imagine a mega project anywhere in the next 10 years coming down the, the line. We do think the Mountain Valley Pipeline will reach completion just because so much pipe is already in the ground. Um, but you know, if it were to meet the same fate, which we don't think it will of Atlantic Coast Pipeline, that's really the last one. That's a mega project that's kind of on the table. The ones in the Haynesville, we think they can get built. They're not quite as um, you know big as the projects we're talking about with Mountain Valley and Atlantic Coast. And the region typically tends to be a little bit more supportive politically of infrastructure build. So we're comfortable considering those projects will still come online. Um, but we don't see, I think the rest of the decade we're looking at, we're gonna have to work with the infrastructure that's in the ground today. Of course, we can do all sorts of improvements and small projects here and there, but the, the day of the mega, mega project, I think is gone for now. I don't say it won't ever come back, but it'd probably be really hard to go into a project finance discussion on a large uh, two BCF a day project, um, given the ability of the opposition to really just dig those cost overruns way beyond anybody's appetite. Oh, you bet. And Rob, some of the key information in there uh, about it was also ducks. Could we go into a little bit, you know, uh, we always hear in the in the industry, if it's a duck, it doesn't quack because yeah. so, so many people have different ways of describing what a duck yeah. is. How yeah. in the world do you and your team and Inveris say this is how we put a number to a duck? Because they all mean different things. 
Yeah, like there, there's no, there's no even lack of argument internally here. Um, and as long as ducks have been around, no matter how many different uh, industry analysts or industry participants you talk to, the number is going to be different. Um, we're pretty confident that we have a pretty good methodology, mostly because we feel like we have access to all the various sorts of data that you kind of need to come up with a methodology. So what I'm talking about is we really start with looking at well starts through time, which we use our, um, the, the core data comes from state level data and the reporting that's required there, but we organize it into our rig analytics tool and you can see the well starts through time as they're reported. And then we try to eliminate from those, you're looking at anything that's, you know, re-entering a well or plugging a well or a dry hole, um, anything that kind of on the permit itself. So we have access to all these permits that we can go through and see if it's a CO2, you know, you want to kick those out. Really what we're looking for, hey, which one for a new well start is actually really that, a new well for new oil or gas. Then once we get through that, you know, we are going to see if um, um, through, once you've got that subset going, um, we're also going to say, okay, can we take out of those ones where we've seen a completion filing posted against this per specific permit? Um, once you've got that, now you have a subset of what you can see as here's actually wells that were drilled. They're relevant to being a um, uh, producing asset. Sorry, I also forgot to mention anything that actually has shown marketed production coming out and that's reported. Obviously, that's a completed well or if it has a completion filing. And then we try to look at the time frame. To us, it's really important that it's actually been sitting there for almost six months um, mm -hmm. before we really considered a duck. We also sometimes internally call those bad ducks because those are the ones that now you know that's not something that's just, you know, about to come on or there's a completion crew waiting or there's something that's been sitting there idle for a long time. Um, once we narrow down to that level, um, we're pretty confident in our duck numbers. But like I did say, yeah, you can talk to as many analysts as you want. And there's always going to be a little nuance in, in what's what's reported. I, I like your phrase, a bad duck after six months. I mean, you don't want to, uh, that's a bad duck. Uh, that's a pretty yeah. good new word we got around here now. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so if you take a look at the, the ducks versus drilling, your report also goes into a little bit of uh, taking advantage of the ducks, but it looked like the um, uh, Haynesville is going to have less rigs going on than in even in the Marcellus. So what are your thoughts on the rig count versus either one of those right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it stands out the most in the Marcellus species. You, you can see that they've, um, let's, let's take a few steps here. First, shut-in production for the most part has been brought online, right? So that uh, part of the pandemic response um, or, or is sort of in the rear view mirror. Now, really what you're getting at is, okay, but then where's the new activity that's gonna help with the natural declines that we're gonna be seeing? And the Marcellus had a very large duck inventory built up and you were able to see in our report that they actually were bring, bringing marketed production back up to very high levels by working through that inventory of ducks. So the last thing I'll say is, the real answer is kind of, unfortunately, it's TBD. We're watching the operators for their information on when are they bringing activity levels back? 
because that dark inventory has a finite shelf life where you can work through them. But we do need to see in the next three months or so activity return and rig counts start to come back. Obviously, they'll probably never go back to the, the highest peaks we've seen before um, with the way efficiencies continue to improve. But we've got our eyes on the market to see where's the indication that the operators are going back into the field and bringing those rigs back online. You know, uh, Rob, one of your the reports really has some good data and uh, information on the sensitivity to crude prices. And I really like the way it was broken out. And you had the Permian, the DJ, you had everything out in, in those charts. Can we talk a little bit about the gas break-evens uh, sensitivity to crude oil prices? Because there was some good, good information in that report on that. Yeah, I think what we we're trying to say there is really the crux of this whole story. The reason the dry gas plays are back in favor is because the crude oil demand has not returned yet to incent the activity in the oil plays. So Eagleford, Permian, Bakken, DJ, um, Rocky's plays. Um, and, and, and at the end of the day, the break-evens, obviously, as we know, the associated gas that came along with those were what was suppressing prices in the natural gas market because the break-even, it didn't matter. Now, once you're in a sub $40 price range, that's where these break-evens by play come into very uh, high focus for the gas um, production forecast. So that's where we see these really good still can get a 20% return in the Marcellus all the way down to $2. We have a lot of uh, acreage there that, that does break even, even with a $40 price. I think in the chart in the report, you see when we move that price level for oil up to 55 and above, which obviously we're not seeing right now, we don't expect it to come anytime soon, mm -hmm. all of those oily plays come back into competition and they'll start flooding the market with gas that's associated with the oil. But seeing those $2 numbers in the Haynesville, sub 250 in the Haynesville, sub 250 in many um, basins in the Marcellus Utica, that's where the uh, profitable gas is going to be produced. Um, it, it seems like they've always said that the Marcellus has always been more uh, efficient in their drilling and everything. Is that myth true, do you think? I mean, I think they've proven it with the volumes. I mean, look, we go back to 2010 and there's almost no production happening there in an over a decade where prices never did really skyrocket. And in mm -hmm. fact, the entire basin was constrained many, many times, similar to what we saw last year in the Permian. But they, that's that's old news for, for Marcellus players dealing with these, uh, you know, low prices in basin yet the production kept coming. So the efficiencies and the advancements and the improvements in uh, getting the commodity out of the rock, uh, they've proven it for over a decade. So, so there's no doubt that that, that that should not continue. Fantastic. Now I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here. Uh, <laughs> I just go ahead and thought I'd warn you on that. All right. uh, we, we just love Inveris. We love the data you guys have. Um, you know, don't make a million dollar decision without Inveris is my, my, uh, thing. If you need if you got to make a decision, get Inveris, get the data. Um, what's your crystal ball on pricing? We know that, uh, you guys are really, really, uh, bullish on the gas price. Where do you see it? I think in 2021, uh, 
it, it's looking really, really good. So what are your thoughts coming around the corner? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, if we're talking gas prices and you're going to look at, um, we do rely on global demand for natural gas to complete the picture in the U.S. If that call is there and the LNG exports are needed um, and we see a normal winter or anything close to a normal winter, uh, we're pretty confident you could go through all of 2021 north of $3 for the entire year. Um, nice. Where it's going to exactly land, I don't know. It's definitely going to be higher than it is today. Um, and it's definitely going to be higher in the winter, but that could continue on throughout the balance of the year north of $3, um, which is significantly higher than where our current future price uh, curve is, is settling at. Now, um, with all of the green uh, and ESG, ESG is, you know, if you ain't got ESG, you're not going to have access to capital. Yep. What are you, I'm throwing this just out as a uh, totally random and you can say, hey, Stuart, uh, I have no idea or this is a silly question, but what are you feeling that natural gas is the bridge to, you know, renewable uh do you hear that around uh, the Inveris office? What are your thoughts on, you know, natural gas being the bridge to, to renewable uh, nirvana? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's going to evolve over time. Yes, we talk about it all the time here. Look, that, that statement's been around since, uh, you know, since Aubrey McClendon first kind of brought it up when, when he was uh, poking holes for Chesapeake and trying to sell it that way. And whether it will ever evolve to be just that binary of a solution that it is the bridge, like it's the bridge right now, um, to some extent, it's going to continue. There is no one lever. I always say that there's never ever only one lever to pull on doing any sort of energy transition. So gas is going to be part of that solution. Will it be the way we originally conceived it in 2010 when we started to move off coal? Maybe, maybe not. Um, it's going to play a part. You can see, obviously, the headlines of today, what's struggling in California to keep the lights on. That story is a lot more complex than they just have too much renewables. Um, but gas is going to be part of this equation. Outside of the U.S., it's also going to be part of the equation. Now, look, this is going to be hours-long conversation we get into. Are they building coal, renewables, or gas? You know what? The answer is yes. The rest of the world is building all of the above. The U.S. has a solid repository of natural gas that we're going to use both here and overseas. Um, whether it will, in the history books, be the bridge fuel, in some extent, yes. And it's just going to be a complex story as we go forward. Now that we have extended our interview for about four hours, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <clears throat> we need to kind of get back to that California question. Uh, sure. You kind of got me intrigued a little bit. What do you think was some of the issues that they may or may not have done right? Because you did kind of allude that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, renew having, I believe it's 30% of their power yeah. is renewable. So yeah. what are your thoughts on what they may have may not done? You may have opened up Pandora's box on that. Probably Pandora's box. I won't by any means consider myself the, uh, you know, resident expert on California energy markets. And anybody who is, you know, good luck to them. Um, I think, you know, the easy answer is to say they took too many fossil fuel assets or traditional assets, including nukes, offline at the same time they were uh, building out the renewable stack. I think that answer is a little bit too easy and oversimplifies it. I think there's also a lot of structural problems um, 
and not that anywhere else is doing it any better in the actual management of the grid, right? There's a lot of different bodies that have a say in how uh, energy is going to be dispatched. And it may not be the most efficient. It may have worked for decades. And now we're going to have to redesign how the CAISO and the California Energy Commission and um, the legislature all get a say in what's happening. Well, maybe the system is not designed to actually turn on the right assets at the right time just because we're working under an old model where we're trying to move to a new distribution system. So, I mean, hats off to them for trying, and there's going to be a lot of pain and a lot of cost that comes with it. Um, but, you know, this is where the future is. We're going to have to address these issues and learn from them as they go forward. So, you know, there, there probably could be some argument for a little more nuclear and natural gas in California, or there's another solution that hasn't even um, got there. But it's definitely events like these that actually get the heads together in the room to figure out how to make it better. Oh, you bet. And, you know, uh, the whole team at, at Varus is so uh, great with numbers. I can see how your whole team, uh, I believe you had somebody else on your team that you want to give a shout out for, uh, for helping you with this. Uh, yeah. Uh, what yeah, I'm always happy to, uh, you know, highlight the team members that help bring in these reports. So I'm, I'm the headline quote on this one in particular, but um, one of my team members, Maria Sanchez, did all the heavy lifting on this report. Um, a lot of the research that went into it um, uh, came directly from her, and um, she's, you know, a fantastic asset for our team. Sounds fantastic. And I'll tell you what, Rob, thank you for your time today. I really just appreciate you guys and appreciate the extra time on your report. Uh, we will have uh, in the show notes how to get to this report because it is worth the time. So thank you very much, Rob. We'll talk to hey, you soon. Thank you for having me. We always have a pleasure uh, participating with you. As always, high-level stuff from Rob and the people over at Inveris. If you want to hear all of our other Inveris interviews, check out the Energy 360 podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes. We really appreciate all their time. Check out everything Oil & Gas 360 related at the world's greatest website, www.oilandgas360.com. Until next time, he's Stuart Turley. I'm Michael Tanner. We will see you on the next one.